Welcome to Women and Manufacturing, where accomplished women interview accomplished women, with your host, Barbara Troutline. Welcome. I'm Dr. Barbara Troutline, Principal and Chief Catalyst at Change Catalyst. I partner with clients to manufacture change in this age of disruption across industries and around the globe. I am thrilled to be a host for Women and Manufacturing and to get the opportunity to interview exceptional women in STEM fields. Our conversations are mission critical to ensure all voices are heard and are able to contribute to our workplaces and our world. And of course, our dialogue is of vital importance for women and girls and men and boys too to achieve success in life and work. Please do continue to engage in this conversation by following us online at womenandmfg.com and on Twitter as well. Please join me today in welcoming Catherine Kelly to our show. Catherine serves as Executive Director of the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University, devoted to providing action-provoking policies and reports on advanced manufacturing trends, workforce development, and disruptive technologies. She collaborates with state and national partners to develop regional and national public policies to support manufacturing innovation, advocate for small and medium-sized manufacturing needs within the supply chain, and remove barriers between industry and academia. She has more than 20 years' experience in program leadership and strategic communications in industry-oriented higher education and statewide organizations. Welcome, Catherine. Barbara, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Well, I was wondering, to start off, if there's anything you'd like the audience to know to share about you, about your background that wasn't covered in the bio, that would be valuable for us to know. As with many uh, individuals who are in their careers, I took uh, a lot of side turns that actually connected into what I do now. Um, my undergraduate degree was actually in English with a concentration in journalism, and my my master's and my doctoral work was in rhetoric uh, with a focus on folklore. So that uh, allows me to tell the stories of, of others, and uh, and I, I think that that background, especially with my work with um, the rhetoric of science and, and, and other areas, has informed uh, my approach to my career career and, and my role here at, at the Ohio Manufacturing Institute. I actually started my career at the City of Columbus Mayor's Office and helped organize uh, from the, the city's perspective the uh, Task Force on Technology and the Future of the City. That sounds rather lofty. Uh, mainly, <laughs> uh, the goal was to become a, a model city for technology integration and uh, with the business education and, and the overall community. Anyway, at the time, Austin was making great strides, and uh, a lot of other cities wanted to be tech towns, and, uh, and this was a way for us to galvanize community support for some of the things that were our strengths. I mean, we weren't trying to replicate that, but definitely create our, our own path toward uh, being a technology-integrated city. Um, then... Moving on to that, uh, moving on to um, my next uh, role, uh, I was at the Ohio Supercomputer Center and uh, ORNET for about 12 years as the director of outreach, and we focused on one program in particular that I'm very proud of uh, called Blue Collar Computing. Uh, it's now called Awesome, uh, and that was to incorporate modeling and simulation 
uh, practices in small and medium-sized manufacturing firms, so not so that they did not have to have that high-performance computing background to reap the benefits of supercomputing. And I learned some early lessons on what industry is willing to do with technology. And I remember uh, one of our partners, uh, a manufacturing extension partnership in Northeast Ohio, uh, the director there uh, had indicated, okay, let me tell you that if you're trying to implement this, that a lot of these small and medium-sized firms are going to respond with, am I going to hire a, an engineer and and pay that engineer to do this system because we were touting that this could be done by somebody with a bachelor's degree and a lot of about 40, only 40% of companies in the state at least uh, have engineers on staff, uh, you know, or am I going to get that boat out on Lake Erie this summer? <laughs> which one do you Great think question. is going to, <laughs> which one do you think we're going to pick? <laughs> that's a great that's a great real world question and in case the readers listeners want to get more information about what you're talking about I love that it's called awesome and it's actually spelled a w e capital s i m so awesome I think that's that's uh that's super creative so um but anyway what was the answer to that question what happened next I think we learned that uh we had to make sure that that this was more adaptable to um, to companies, that, and and we really needed to focus on that 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 level that we had thought was appropriate for uh, you know for someone to work the program. We we needed to to make sure that it was adjusted. And you know we were touting, oh well, you don't have to have a PhD to do this. And we learned very quickly that well, you, you really don't necessarily need a bachelor's degree to get this to take care of this. So. Yeah, that's fascinating, and that statistic also that you just shared is new to me about the percentage of manufacturing organizations that do not, in fact, have an engineer on staff. That's very interesting to me. Well, it doesn't mean that they don't have technicians or, or other you know, technically oriented workers, you know, especially with the uh, advent of STEM. You know, but, but I, I think a lot of people make the assumption that you know, STEM degree equals bachelor's degree, and that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, that's a that's a great insight, and that's that's very true. Um, mm-hmm. Anything else from your background that you wanted to share at this point? Uh, the only other thing, and this is connected to the um, to the uh, show, is that uh, I directed the Young Women's Summer Institute for a number of years uh, for girls to gain proficiency in computational science, and we used project-based learning where they explored uh, watersheds in uh, in the state using Ohio EPA data. And that was a way for us to get them interested in this area because we found that for a couple of years, the high school program focused on computational science, uh, that we were only getting uh, male applicants, not uh, anyone uh, you know, beyond that. And so we wanted to find a way at the middle school level based on the uh, research that was conducted in some of the NSF data, the National Science Foundation, that this was really... Um, the project-based learning is an approach that works uh, to get women more involved in, in the STEM fields. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's very interesting, and I'm sure just getting familiar with the project-based approach that so many that they're going to get exposed to when they actually get jobs in industry uh, really gives them a leg up also. I, I'm wondering if you get feedback on that front as well, so not just the 
content of what they're learning, but also just the process of the mindset around managing a project and the discipline that that entails. Yes, and they, um, you know, we did uh, do a follow-up survey. Uh, We started the program in 2000, so this will be the 18th year. Um, I I haven't been associated with the program for the last four or five years. However, um, we did find that even when uh, the girls uh, graduated and went through uh, and continued their education, that even if they didn't go into science or technology fields, that they felt really confident uh, as they were taking that coursework in their ability to succeed. And so I think that that was definitely uh, worth the, what we had set up for the program uh, for the girls to do. And, uh, you know, also I, I think the ex- extracurricular activities we had outside of what they were learning each day, uh, we had a, um, a career panel where we had undergraduate and graduate students talking to the girls about, you know, their path and what they had found. I think really helped prepare them for what they were going to be doing later on in life. Yeah, I think so often in high school, it's just so much about getting exposure to different options. I was not even exposed to my field or what I've done for the last almost 30 years now until I was, I think, a junior in college that this field actually existed. So that must be so powerful just to not only get exposed to some specific things that they might be able to do on the job, but just hearing the stories and the career paths and the options from other women. Um, to your point, I'm sure that was a very, very powerful part of the program. Well, Catherine, there's something else that we have in common. We were both undergraduate English majors, which is a fun connection. I was a double major English and psychology, and I picked psychology because I thought that's what I really wanted to do, and I picked English because I loved reading and writing and thought it would be fun. And like you, I realized uh, uh, very early in my career that it was actually a very useful skill set to have to bring to bear. And I love how you link it to telling stories and, and your ability to um, you know, share stories as a really powerful communication and, and learning tool. Um, and so speaking of that, um, I know you have so many to share about the really fascinating women that you've encountered in your roles in, in uh, industry and academia. And, and I'd love to ask you to share some with the audience right now. Oh, definitely. And and I do believe that all roads lead to English. So that's uh, definitely the perspective we share. Uh, so I'm really constantly inspired by stories about women manufacturers. And uh, through the Manufacturing Tomorrow podcast, and you have been a guest on, on my podcast, um, I've interviewed some incredible leaders um, uh, the, the one that really, actually she's my favorite, um, is, uh, was introduced to me by uh, Cindy Marsiglio, who is responsible for leading Walmart's um, manufacturing program and specifically uh, their supplier diversity program. And that encourages diverse companies to explore new opportunities with Walmart. And so the company uh, is investing $20 billion to promote women-owned business. And so from uh, her presentation to Columbus 2020, our economic development uh, organization here in central Ohio, I met uh, Ashley Thompson. Uh, Ashley is a, the co-founder and CEO of 50 Strong, a blow-molding manufacturing uh, manufacturer in Lima, Ohio, that produces water bottles and bicycle accessories. 50 Strong was formed in 2012 when Ashley and her husband, Brendan, launched the business. 
um, she's a, uh, even though she's a second-generation manufacturer, uh, she took a, um, a while to get into that business. Um, she um, she was, uh, started her career in corporate law, and then she took a few years off to start a family and then returned to her father's company, Pre- Precision Thermoplastic Components, and uh, started working in the Human Resources Department then um, you know, she launched her own company out of that, uh, focused on the water bottles, um, making three million bottles last year. And she does her um, just the way in which she embodies her company was I, just so impressive. And how uh, when she's at the store and she sees someone pick up a water bottle, she has to ask them, "Why did you pick up that water bottle? What do you like about it?" And uh, you know, being a mother and a CEO, she she understands that that work-life balance isn't necessarily going to happen every day. So she told me that you know sometimes she can be a good CEO one day, sometimes she can't be a good mom, sometimes she's a great mom, sometimes she's not so great at being the CEO. Uh, but her perspective on that. Uh, you know, and and understanding that balance, I I think is really important for women to to understand as they're going uh, as they um, as they're pursuing their careers. And when I ask yeah, her, yeah, I sometimes, love what, you know, just just interrupt right here, just for a sec, just to present something that I think that um, we women tend to do more than men, and that is we can be our own harshest critics, right? Um, you know, sometimes I think we can be bullies to ourselves and just have such high expectations and. And um, so just the ability to be gentler with ourselves and, um, you know, again, and, uh, you know, uh, the value judgment around am I a good CEO, am I a bad CEO today, a good mother, bad mother. It's, um, you know, it's, again, that, that opportunity to uh, um, uh, have that gentleness with ourselves and, you know, what our self-talk is. And I think even that um, and, and being, you know, transparent and open about those kind of conversations and our internal struggles is, is also just a real um, inspiration to other women, especially younger women coming up. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, Catherine. Well, I agree with that, and I, I think just having the ability to be frank and transparent about that is also something mm-hmm. that as women we excel at, at doing and, and you know, opening up and, and exposing those vulnerabilities that happen when you do have a life outside of you know, outside of being a CEO or being a director or running your own business and, you know, and what that takes. And, you know, that I think it's very important to, to keep that out in the open and, and not try to tough it out and move through your day. And, um, you know, and, and uh, she did it with such levity that, uh, I, you know, I, I really appreciated her, her attitude about it. And whenever I ask, um, uh, Sometimes during the interview, I'll ask, you know, what did you not think that you would be doing that you're doing now uh, with what your um, with your work? And she said she never thought she'd be schlepping water bottles through the TSA at the airport to head to Walmart to show off the. <laughs> her... <laughs> That's funny. So, uh, and I have so many, but um, a couple of, of others. Um, there was a well, just one other thing I just wanted to presence about that example, too, is that I just love the image of her having so much passion for what she does that she's in a store asking a customer, why did you pick up that water bottle, right? Um, so often I think we focus on what happens within our own manufacturing facilities and just that engagement with the end customer 
and that engagement both with the organizational customer, Walmart, as well as with the, the consumer, right, Walmart's customer. I just think that's fabulous. And that, again, to me, is a, is a very inspirational um, act by a CEO in terms of how to run a business. Exactly, and and you know it's it's also that that cliche, you know, do you live to work or do you work to live? And you know, I, mm. I think uh, you know she she really uh, exemplifies the you know, the former. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I just wanted to make that point, and so I'd love to hear the next story you were inspired to share. Well, there are so many. I mean, it, it, just a, a couple that uh, I. Um, of, of uh, women manufacturers I've met over the last few months. Uh, one of them is Lisa Oswald. She's owner of K Chemical, and that's a Cleveland-based, another family-owned company uh, that manufactures high-quality industrial cleaners. She took over from her uncle over five years ago and is working to establish a lifestyle brand while building on the reputation of the um, of the products that made the business. And so they have this one hand cleaner called K-Guard that is very popular among mechanics and artists. You know, it really gets out the grease and it heals dry, cracked skin. And so she's moving the company into a different element and, you know, and, and trying to reach out to resources. So she works with the Magnet Innovation Center in uh, Northeast Ohio to, um, to, to find ways to commercialize some new products to develop something beyond uh, what they've done. And, and so she has talked about the, the culture change that is, that is needed in order to do that. And um, another example is uh, Dr. Helen Muga. What is the She's, culture change? What, is, what has she talked about? What is, what is her uh, thoughts on that subject? Because that uh, that, that's very interesting, the whole idea of what, how we can, um, you know, again, not only succeed in, uh, in manufacturing, but also I love what you just shared, inspire culture change, inspire us to develop new types of products that are going to, you know, fit certain niches. Um, so, so yeah. So did you, uh, did the interview extend to that subject? She didn't go into detail, uh, although she did indicate that, um, you know, working with, um, those who have developed and are producing the current cleaner, a set of cleaners that, you know, they're perfectly happy with doing what what they have been doing. You know, it's um, the fallacy of tradition, I guess you could call it. If you, you know, if I go back to my rhetoric days, and uh, and so you know, it, it, a lot of things are are you know pushed towards the status quo, and she's trying to get them to think differently and to branch out beyond what has been done before. So she didn't go into detail, but she did indicate that, you know, that she had experienced some resistance, but, you know, she's worked, you know, with, um, and and her background uh, allows her to, you know, to work toward uh, moving them toward that, that lifestyle brand perspective. Yeah, no, I always say that what looks like resistance to change or culture change in other people is often an opportunity for us as those leading change to do something differently. And it sounds like she really intuits that, that she really intuits that it's all about the relationships that will help you get results and, and to, um, you know, really engage and communicate and partner with her team to move in a new direction. So um, right. that's wonderful. So, okay, Especially, great. Well, um, right. Especially when you're talking about a company that's been in existence for 50, over 50 years. Right, um, and right. 
I, I found it very interesting that she entered into manufacturing uh, from and, and her background was uh, she's she's a clinical audiologist. I mean, she she was at Cleveland Clinic Foundation uh, as a clinical audiologist before she took over the family business. Wow, wow, that is a very interesting career change. Yes. No, I, I always think it's fascinating to think about what are the themes and the trends that that follow us our whole lives, that things that we're really, uh, that we're called to do, that we tend to do regardless of the situation that we're in or stage in life. And it seems like for her, being a clinical audiologist, that that theme of really listening, um, uh, listening and helping people hear, whether it's in her you know, previous role as the audiologist or now with her company and the culture change, so I just think that um, again, that's a that's a fascinating way to look at um, uh, at you know again whatever our career tra- trajectory is as as even as you just said in the beginning, Catherine, with your journey from your undergraduate studies in English to where you are now. Then you have somebody like Dr. Helen Muga. She's uh, the founder of Pacific Water, and she's a, a Papua New Guinea native, and uh, came to Ohio uh, and co-founded the Department of Engineering at the University of Mount Union and now is Director of Engineering at Baldwin-Wallace University. She and her students design and build residential and commercial water treatment systems that minimize the use of plastic and provide good quality clean water. Um, Her goal is for Pacific Water to be a leading water company in the development and manufacture of innovative water technologies, and she developed this company as a way to expose her students to the business world of water and to show them how to build a business from the ground up. Uh, She's a strong proponent of women in STEM, and she strives to give women engineers more opportunities and encourage them to remain in engineering. So it's a strong force, and, uh, you know, it's it's very uh, interesting, her, um, her way of teaching by doing and uh you know so that she's you know it's a it's a company but it's also an applied engineering lab for her students wow that's fascinating yeah that's a very broad um very broad thinker and very broad actor well thank you so much Catherine, for sharing these inspirational stories and some of the tangible examples of what you've heard and seen uh throughout your career and your career has focused a lot on helping academia and industry partner together more effectively. And I'm also wondering and think it would be very interesting to the audience to learn more about what barriers you've seen that manufacturers face working with academia and what roles each play in productive collaborations. In our role to reduce the barriers, uh, OMI has worked a lot with manufacturers to receive feedback on uh, what types of things uh, universities and other academic institutions can do uh, to support uh, their businesses. And what we found, um, and, and this also builds off of the work of my predecessor, uh, Rich Spivey, who came uh, from Honda as an, a loaned executive uh, to support these efforts because they do, at least se- several years ago, the, the a number was they do about $9 billion in business with the supply chain in the state of Ohio. So um, taking that, you know, they were, they're very engaged in finding out how they can, how the universities and, and other institutions can help uh, those tier two and beyond suppliers. So, um, 
what we found is that uh, traditionally uh, university entry points are, are unclear to industry. They don't know who the point of contact should be. Um, uh, a lot of them get lost in the system, especially if it's a large university. Um, and then uh, a lot of the specific fields of research, the language is different than what industry uses. So trying to figure out who has that expertise is, is really difficult. Um, you know, a lot of the engagement websites are very much geared toward uh, points of pride with what the university does, uh, but not necessarily geared towards what we can do for industry. And then uh, a lot of our engagement mechanisms are not aligned with industry expectations. So uh, we work at the speed of academia, not the speed of business. That means, you know, if someone is off on spring break or there's summer break, that uh, doesn't that is not exactly the way business uh, is is set up. Uh, the contracting and the pricing. You know, I, I even had someone at at some point when I was working with uh, engineering testing services uh, to help companies connect with, with faculty, uh, they were wondering uh, why they couldn't pay up front instead of uh, the, the traditional way of paying when services were rendered. So those are the types of things, the barriers that have existed. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, the, uh, when it comes to the culture and the characteristics, uh, there's a, a lack of incentives for faculty to engage with industry. I think that's changing, and we can talk about that later. Um, we also um, understand that, uh, you know, as I said before, the research is not aligned to uh, industry needs or, or the trends that exist, and, uh, and we seem to be more focused on IP generation and tech commercialization and, and entrepreneurial startups than you know, working uh, on the applied research with existing manufacturers. And really a lot of times it takes one experience and uh, you know, someone, I've heard this time and time again, somebody uh, will say, well, I tried that once with the university and it was a total mess and I'm not doing it again. I'm not trying this again. So a lot of times you're dealing with a one and done uh, with a company. You know, they just don't have the time or the resources to spend on working out what uh, can be done and who they should talk to to get solutions, uh, especially innovation solutions, uh, out, of, uh, out of academia. Yeah, those are all great examples, and it does bring us back to the different, you know, fundamental cultures, right, and operating norms and, as you say, characteristics between academia and industry. Um, and yet, I would imagine that you've seen many shining, exam shining examples of successes, that there must be a number of roles that can play to each other's strengths. Um, what have you seen as that front, and maybe what are some of the cr critical success factors to make such collaborations actually work? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I do think the relationships are changing for the better and that uh, a number of universities are are focusing on uh, on the relationships with industry. I mean, the relationships have been there in the past, so I think we're back toward a cycle, and I hope it stays, that we are focusing on those those relationships. And, um, and nationally, we have organizations such as the University Industry Demonstration Partnership, and they are working to increase the, in the uh, industry university collaborations. So we, we do have, and, and I, I know that uh, 
Um, the Ohio State University is a member of that. Um, there are other uh, examples. Um, we are working statewide on the Ohio Innovation Exchange, and that is a research expertise portal where industry can find faculty experts, uh, research experts, uh, labs and equipment uh, to um, support their needs. Um, ultimately, you know, I, I think um, universities are um, adding roles that, that play to, to the, their strengths and can connect with, with industry more clearly. Um, we have a, uh, a, a center here called the Center for Design and Manufacturing Excellence that is working with companies uh, to develop prototypes and to work on industry projects. Um, so I really see uh, some movement uh, where um, we are making our value proposition to industry clearer. Um, so some of the things that we found in the buildup to developing the Ohio Innovation Exchange and some of the other work that OMI has conducted is uh, that uh, in terms of what industry uh, sees as a value proposition, um, they really want business-level services. They want a one-stop shop to resources. They want one, one contact, you know, one, one group or one person that they can contact to get their needs addressed. Um, of course, the number one um, interest um, time and time and again uh, by industry uh, is the, their future workforce. So internships and co-ops have, have always been um, you know, the, um, the number one um, request from companies, and a lot of times they develop that employee pipeline uh, through internships. And uh, you know, I heard uh, the, a college of uh, engineering dean at Case Western Reserve University said one time that students are university's number one IP, and uh, I, I do tend to believe that's true. Um, the other yeah, thing absolutely. That I, I was going to say another interview that I did was with Tiffany Ling, who's with the engineering faculty at the University of St. Thomas. And she said something very similar, that what the universities produce is, you know, college graduates, it's the students, right? And um, so I think that that is something definitely that you can comment on with a lot of, you know, expertise is exactly how universities are perhaps um, meeting industry needs in terms of, uh, you know, preparing uh, students for careers in manufacturing and in what ways that, um, you know, perhaps that the, uh, you know, the collaboration, the partnership could be even stronger to, um, to meet the needs, to, as you say, of uh, the future workforce. Yes, we conducted a, a study that we released in uh, early January uh, with my co-author, Fran Stewart, um, th th where we looked at the uh, engineering technology skills that will be needed in the future, and we conducted a number of focus groups around the state uh, to determine what skills are, are needed now, what companies were, were doing um, that would uh, you know, necessitate some changes in, in the way we approach um, the training of, of students in the educational program. Uh, and so we really um, focused on you know, what, what were those specific skills. She used the Department of Labor data 
uh, to uh, develop a, a set of skills, and we reviewed those at the end of our focus groups to uh, get a, a, a read on if these uh, fit what uh, the companies were looking for in workers. And uh, no, shouldn't be any surprise. What we found is that they really want students who have more applied learning, who know how to connect the heads to the hands. Um, you know that they. Um, the, the, and then uh, another thing that really factored prominently in the um, in the um, skills that are needed is a, a good portion of the um, employers were concerned about um, incoming workers and in that they did not have the interpersonal aptitude and the communication skills or soft skills that were needed in the modern workplace. And I, I even have one one of the respondents said, you know, I just want someone who knows how to make a decision. And mm. I mean the. So they they say that the they can teach them the the technical technical you know the, the employers can teach the technical but you know they really need students who understand how to work uh, in diverse teams who have those communication skills um, you know that um, they say that universities um, you know they turn out students who are too theoretical and they need to be more applied even though. Workers will come in touting their robotics experience uh, because they've they've engaged in a number of competitions. They still don't understand how that that technology interplays with other equipment on the factory floor. They don't understand it in a systemic way. Uh, so that is something that uh, you know some of the the um, findings that uh, that we we got out of that report, and we're using it actually at Ohio State to develop an engineering technology program. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And so what advice, based on your research and experience and what you've been hearing from industry, might you give to college students to make the most of their time at OSU or wherever they're attending so they can really set themselves up for success? as a candidate for, um, you know, working in a manufacturing organization. And, and, you know, you could speak about, you know, young men and women both, and if there's any specific additional advice that you might suggest to the women students. Of course, each student has uh, his or her own path, and I think that we are uh, exemplars of how once you uh, get out of school, you're – professional career may, may take some, some twists and turns that still maintain, you know, a certain core. Uh, so, uh, you know, in terms of you know, a, a magic set of schools, skills, I don't know if I can provide that. Um, however, I, I would indicate uh, that, I mean, what we found was that it really is important for students to get that uh, applied learning. And, and a lot of times that comes out of uh, Having internships, you know, uh, another thing would be to try to find projects in which you can gain some of that practical experience. And uh, you know, a lot of the manufacturing skills of the future are going to be um, are going to be digital. So, um, I, 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 in fact, I think I'll, that might not be a, a major concern because you know a, a lot of students have grown up in the digital age. So I, I don't see that leap as being uh, uh, you know, as as much as vast as maybe some of the earlier generations who are, are dealing with that right now in terms of operating or repairing computerized systems and using data to make decisions. I think they're well placed for that. Um, so I think that 
you know, when we get into that, I, I really think, uh, uh, in fact, one of the examples uh, that I got from a manufacturer is that they they were looking at technical skills, uh, and then they've shifted over to what has that student done uh, in, in his or her extracurricular, um, you know, what, what, in the extracurricular time. So what have they done? Have they been uh, in a fraternity or sorority? Have they been in a club? Uh, have they worked? Um, have they volunteered? Uh, you know, what, what types of activities outside of class are they engaged in? I think that that, that speaks to that, those soft skills that, uh, that seem to be lacking right now. So if they have those, then, then they, they see that as a sign that the students have appropriate skills. Right, I think that's great, and I definitely hear that from my manufacturing clients as well, that um, well-rounded person who's able to learn, because technology is always going to be able to evolve, so the ability to learn and then the ability to collaborate and work as a team. Um, as we know, so often people get a job because of their IQ and their technical skills and their experience and their education, but what truly makes them successful on the job is their EQ or their emotional intelligence, their ability mm -hmm. to really um, you know, work well with others. So I can totally see that as resonating. Um, and how about on the flip side, Catherine? How about if you were going to speak to, um, which you often do, uh, manufacturers, uh, people in industry that, you know, may be interested in uh, a collaboration with a university that might have a need that they feel that a university could fill, a partnership together. Um, what might you suggest in terms of what might be some of the most winning collaboration opportunities and what can the manufacturers do themselves to set that relationship up for success? One of the things is uh, you know, keep trying to, to find the right point of contact, uh, especially at a larger university such as Ohio State. Uh, there are several offices focused on industries, so uh, it, it may take two or three phone calls, but uh, ultimately I think you'll find somebody who's willing to help, just like any organization. Um, and uh, some of the other things is provide research opportunities for students who contact the career centers and find out uh, ways in which you can become involved with students. Maybe it's not necessarily an internship because that does take a lot of staff time uh, to engage and train the student, uh, but there may be some other opportunities where you can have a class conduct a project related to an issue that you're having. Um, so that is another way that uh, industry can uh, can engage. Um, another thing is, you know, contact a lot of the universities uh, in academia have tech transfer offices. I think uh, one way of of uh, working with them is, you know, it's a it's a bi-directional relationship. So they may have some technology uh, that you can take advantage of, but there may also be ways in which uh, you can inform them of market needs and perspectives that maybe they don't have. So that's another way that would be, um, uh, could help establish a firmer relationship between academia and industry. Um, and then, you know, even if it's, uh, I mean, a lot of it might be related uh, in, in connection with the tech transfer office as well, and uh, commercializing applied uh, innovation IP, uh, but there may be a way to go in together on a sponsored project, you know, something that's funded by one of the federal agencies. Uh, that might be another way to develop that relationship. And, of course, it would be um, 
possibly pre-competitive or non-competitive, but at least you're developing those relationships. Um, so I, th I think, uh, uh, lastly, I, th I think another way to do that is, you know, a lot of uh, companies have niche equipment. So, you know, the students may be working on a, on a CNC machine, but you may have some particular equipment uh, that uh, you would like them to learn. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, that might be more limited, but uh, there may be a way to include that technology uh, in a classroom. Um, so that the students are learning how, you know, or at least getting some uh, exposure to that that type of equipment or even the, those types of processes that are being used. In summary, I think there are three areas in which um, students can develop skills that uh, can be used in uh, the workplace, specifically in manufacturing, and uh, of course the one of this is the technical skills. So, you know, learning how to program, operate, you know, maintain and repair uh, what are becoming increasingly complex computerized machines, uh, or biotechnology process, manufacturing goods, uh, what have you. That's one area. Um, secondly, is, are those operational and management skills, you know, being able to interpret and implement new processes that arise out of products and understand those business challenges. And then finally, the basic uh, readiness and interpersonal skills. You know, I mean, something as simple as showing up to work on time, communicating uh, individually and with a team, and being prepared for workforce expectations. I think those are all sort of three broad categories in which a student can uh, can work on bef before graduating. As we close our show today, what key message would you like to leave with our audience? Asked another way, what challenge or action step would you pose to our listeners today? Great question. Um, I think based on what uh, OMI, uh, what, what our mission is, uh, we really want to determine how can educational and training partners industry and technical organizations, public and private labs do to work better together to support the, the manufacturing supply chain, especially the small and medium-sized manufacturers. So what can we do to tear down those silos and become more transparent with each other as we support and promote industry? It's so easy to stay within our organizational framework and not reach out to other organizations uh, that could amplify those efforts, uh, especially, for example, in engineering technology, having universities work with community colleges uh, to develop those multiple on and off ramps could maximize what, uh, what each institution is doing. Um, and uh, another thing that, uh, I, that, that has uh, come to um, to fruition is focusing more on regional approaches. Uh, you know, for example, uh, Lorain County Community College, I think, is a, um, a great example of working within a vast ecosystem of economic development and educational partners in Northeast Ohio to provide expert advice and funding to support startups in this uh, entrepreneurial environment. Um, you know, they play a role and work well with others to make sure that a startup is supported to develop into a more successful business. Uh, another example is um, industry sector partnerships. We're working with the Ohio Manufacturers Association, uh, and they are, have developed a model for addressing workforce development challenges through regional collaborations. So this is industry-led, uh, student-focused, 
uh, where the employers are in the driver's seat and they um, they work within the partnerships within that region to develop an alignment around common solutions with education and training, uh, economic and workforce development. So I think uh, moving more towards uh, breaking down those silos and developing regional solutions that build up to those larger um, efforts, uh, I think that that will make uh, you know, a, um, a sea change in the approaches that we take, not only with innovation, technology innovation, but also with workforce development. Yeah, I love how you're saying that because, as we know, the biggest paradigm shifts come from those kind of partnerships, from people from different silos, as you say, different worlds, seeing things together differently, right, and inspiring others in new directions. And that's exactly the kind of new thinking we need in this time of disruption, um, as you say, both to foster innovation as well as to develop our workforce and men and women of the future. So thank you so much, Catherine, for your time today and both your tangible advice as well as your inspiring stories. Barbara, it was a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you very much. And thanks to our audience for joining us in this conversation. In addition to this inspiring call to action today by Catherine Kelly, please continue to stay tuned and engage with us at womeninfactmanufacturing.com and also on Twitter. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Women and Manufacturing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>